We often talk about travel and transport and getting out and about, but how easy is that if you're blind or partially sighted or have another disability? One researcher in London is Ross Harper, and he's looking into a topic, well, kind of along those lines, actually, and he's looking for your help. Thank you for joining us, Ross. Tell us a little bit about the research you're doing at the moment. I'm working on a project for my MSc from the University of Westminster in kind of collaboration with the RNIB. I've basically got a survey out there that's getting together some travel experiences from those that are visually impaired and blind. And I'm aiming to make a kind of comparison across the UK, different cities and different locations around the country. Okay, when you talk then in terms of travel, what, what specifically are you looking for people to be doing? So any mode, whether it's walking, on the bus, taxis, private cars, trains, etc. And it can be independently or with a sighted guide, guide dog, etc. And just looking at basically what their normal travel behaviour is, so how and why they travel on a weekly basis, and then if they've had any collisions or what we've defined as conflicts or near misses while they're out and about within the last 12 months. Is this less about the, the transport they're using, rather their experience? You mentioned there, you know, things like accidents or, or, or kind of near misses, if you like. Yeah, so the travel element is to try and put some statistical relevance in terms of if they give me an example of a collision that they've had in the last 12 months, is that on a mode that they use frequently, infrequently or or on a day-to-day basis? Or is it a kind of one-off? But also then really drill down into what was it that actually caused that collision conflict near miss, if that makes sense. Is this complementing current research that's out there? It is in many ways. It's quite a popular topic to do research in. If we look in other countries such as America, there's certain cities that do focus on these sort of issues quite heavily. But within my research in particular, the gap in the kind of literature and data that I'm trying to target is very similar to how the National Travel Survey works or STATS-19 data, which is what the emergency services collect on injuries that people sustain on the highway. Neither of these data pools have details of a disability that the individual may have. So they give accident stats and collision stats on the general population, and then they break it down into disability and non-disability, but they don't go to the level of partially sighted, mobility impaired, and all the various other forms. So this is a target at this group, which we know potentially are more likely to have collisions, etc. And is that because they're visually impaired, or is it because it's poorly designed infrastructure, or is it just kind of the nature of the beast of travelling independently around cities, etc.? So a lot of variety in this then, I imagine, with the type of answers you're going to get, because when you look at someone who's completely blind or someone who's partially sighted, and as you mentioned, you know, it could be people with canes and dogs, they're all going to have very different experiences. But in saying that, they may have similar experiences as well, you know, with uh, with accidents and things, which perhaps weren't their fault. Sure. So, yeah, obviously the vision impaired spectrum is huge. There's people that have had it from day one, and there's people that have got conditions that have worsened as with age so that the training that they've had may differ. There is some research out there to suggest that those that have had orientation and mobility training are less likely to be involved in collisions etc and that's something that's captured within the survey so it asks directly if you've had training or not. So I'll be able to pull a bit of analysis on the people that said yes they have are those people still being involved in accidents etc. A lot of the questions are quantitative so they're numbers based essentially yes, no's and ticking certain boxes. And then each example does give the participant a chance to kind of give a detailed example in their own words of what happened to them. So the survey will have, as a result, some quite extensive kind of numbers, crunching and graphs, etc. But there will also be a qualitative kind of side to it where it is individuals' experiences and trying to put that into some sort of perspective of what's actually happened. 
So at the end of the research, what, what do you think your conclusions will be or perhaps what will it be kind of next step type conclusions at the end of this? I think it's going to lean towards next step. I have to bear in mind and ground myself a little bit that it is only for a master's. It's not a PhD or a full-time piece of research as such. So it's little old me on my own conduct this kind of national survey, although I've been kind of overwhelmed with the amount of responses I already have. I'm hoping to kind of make some sort of comparison between the cities that I've had the most responses in whether that's a safety rating percentage or something along those lines. I'm not entirely sure until I do a final cut of the result. But I would like to try and draw comparisons, say, between Sheffield, London and Birmingham, where I'm getting responses. I've also done a control sample of friends, colleagues, uh, etc., to look at people that I know aren't visually impaired and try and make a comparison on their experiences. So something that I've kind of pulled out already is that one in 10 people have reported a collision that don't have a visual impairment. And at the moment, it's between one and three, one to four people have within the last year if they are visually impaired. That's quite a large difference. So a 10% chance or a 25% chance, it does seem skewed in the sense that obviously the visual impairment is contributing to these collisions that are happening each year as such. Something which kind of jumped out at me that's quite interesting, Ross, is you're talking about people out and about. So some of these accidents or near misses may not necessarily be down to infrastructure or the modes of transport themselves. It could be down to independent mobility skills and mobility training or, or the lack of. So, you know, not just something that people could say, well, that's because of the transport or the pavements. Yeah, for sure. There's lots of different training out there and for people that are visually impaired, whether it's just the routes they generally take or they have aids such as guide dogs that are highly skilled animals that can take them away from danger and guide them safely sort of thing. So it, it, it does seem that that's quite a key function, that if, if you are visually impaired or blind and you need to get around independently, there is some training that's needed and you can probably make a common sense kind of judgment that those that suffered early on in their lives with a visual impairment or blindness have had lots more training, lots more experience and actually have probably less collisions potentially than those that perhaps have an age-related condition that are towards the latter end of their lives and then not that bothered about getting trained as such which then inhibits their independence, etc. I suppose also people could just think, well, you know, I've got a visual impairment, it just happens, you know, it's not something that I can do anything about. As I've tried to stress to even my friends and family, etc., that you know, most people aren't blind. You know, most people are visually impaired and they have some vision, whether it's seeing light, dark, shape, can see in the day, can't see at night, those sort of things. The number of people that are actually completely blind is nowhere near the number of people that actually have a visual impairment. Therefore, there's loads of people out there that have visual impairment that have no awareness of what the several charities can do for them, what kind of help there is out there, all these kind of different things that can actually make their lives sort of easier rather than trying to just kind of grimace through this condition as such. So, well, Ross, if people are interested in giving their experiences and helping with your research, how can they get in touch with you? It's tweeted out quite a lot on the RNIB campaign Twitter feed as well as the RNIB one, so you can pick it up from there. Alternatively, you can complete it over the phone by ringing the RNIB campaign's hotline number, which is 020 739 and then that phone is answered Monday to Friday, 9 till 5. And if you ask to complete the travel survey, the ladies and gentlemen that answer that phone will know exactly what you're talking about. And they're the two kind of main methods to complete it up until the 31st of July this month. Ross, let's hope uh, many people do uh, get involved. Sounds like an interesting piece of research. It'd be good to hear how it, uh, it all pans out in the end. But for the moment, thank you for speaking with us on RNIB Connect Radio. Thank you very much.